Welcome to this week's episode of Muddy York. I'm Adam Weiser. And I'm Grayson Miller. How are you guys doing today? Well, I'm the only one here, and I'm doing great because we have a very good episode this week. Nice. I think I was talking to the audience in general, Adam, but okay, I'm glad that you're doing well too because I'm excited for this episode. It's a very interesting place. I've been there. I've seen some great shows there. Kevin Hart, um, lots of great comedy, but let's get into it. All right. Well, for years, Broadway producers have been testing new shows in Toronto before sending them to New York. Sometimes they succeed, like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and sometimes they flop, like Lord of the Rings. Getting a sneak peek at upcoming shows is just one of the benefits of living here. And this week's episode is about the very first time that it happened, with a then-brand-new show called Camelot. It's also about the venue that had just been built where Camelot premiered. Today it's called Meridian Hall, but for me, it's always been the O'Keeffe Center which is the name it had for the first 26 years it was around. The idea for O'Keefe Center, which I've decided I'm going to call it for the rest of this episode because I'm old and stubborn, came from what was then the newly elected mayor, Nathan Phillips. He challenged Toronto's business leaders to build a new venue that could be used for concerts, theater, or dance performances. Now, this was 1955. Toronto didn't have a theater district. The Royal Alex was the only major theater in town, and it was woefully shabby. There was nowhere to go for big shows, and Phillips thought that a new theater would be a wonderful boost to the cultural life of this city. Businessman E.P. Taylor responded to the challenge. He stepped up and offered to underwrite the cost of a brand new theater. Naturally, Toronto was horrified. You see, E.P. Taylor was president of Canadian breweries, and worse, he wanted to name the new venue after Eugene O'Keefe, the man who created his company's most famous brand of beer. Now remember, this was still Toronto the Good, a prim and proper Protestant city. Alcohol was sinful, and polite society was scandalized by the idea of mixing beer and culture. Church groups said that Taylor was prostituting the arts and demanded that the city reject his offer. During the debate, one city councillor told a critic, quote, I don't know how much venom you can put in your hatred for a glass of beer. In all, it would take three years for city council to finally approve this proposal. It's so funny how much it changed because I can't really imagine going to a great event that doesn't have beer or alcohol. So, I mean, <laughs> such, such a far away the city's come. So... When the Jays were first created, you could not get beer at their games. And now they cost $18 a beer. What a world we live in. <laughs> <laughs> That's so crazy. You couldn't get beer at the first games. No, remember, uh, Ontario and Toronto especially was proud of being, you know, sober and upright. Not like those heathen Catholics. You know, they drank all hours of the day, but Toronto was a proper Protestant city. It's funny because at the same time, I think they were having like... 10 cent beer nights at some of the uh, stadiums in the States, which ended in disaster. But uh, I can see maybe why Toronto went that way. Okay, anyways, back to the O'Keefe Center. The new theater would be located in the heart of downtown at the southeast corner of Young and Front Streets. This was originally the site of the Great Western Railway Terminal, 
Later, it would become the Toronto Wholesale Fruit Market and eventually the Canadian Consolidated Rubber Company. O'Keeffe Centre was designed by Peter Dickinson, a mid-century modernist building at a time when almost everything in Toronto had an old-fashioned Neo-Georgian style. The most distinctive architectural feature is the canopy at the front of the building, with a great upward sweep lined with rows of mirrored globe lights. The lobby includes a 100 by 15 foot mural by York Wilson called Seven Lively Arts. It took six months for Wilson to complete the mural, which is an abstract representation of painting, sculpture, architecture, music, literature, dance, and drama. A modernist theater design or an abstract mural in the lobby may not seem that remarkable, but this was cutting edge in 1960. By opening night, Toronto was excited about its new theater. The star said it would be the flossiest, glossiest, minkiest, costliest first night Toronto has ever had. One audience member said that she had never seen so many men in evening dress. Anti-brewery sentiment had also gone flat and E.P. Taylor was loudly applauded as he stepped from his car into the blinding barrage of spotlights. It was such a big deal that CBC television covered opening night live. Here's a short clip. Saturday night, October 1st, the world premiere of a great musical play destined for Broadway success and the opening of one of the world's finest theaters. Tonight, live from Toronto, first night at the O'Keeffe Center for the Performing Arts. Your hosts, Fred Davis, John O'Leary, and Rex Loring. And here's Fred Davis. By 8.15, just under three quarters of an hour from now, the Lieutenant Governor of the Province of Ontario, the Honorable John Keeler Mackay, and 3,200 other guests will have taken their seats as the first audience in the darkened theater just a few steps from where I'm standing now. And if uh, prominence and achievement and even wealth are any uh, criteria, this is certainly going to be some audience. But what was the audience there to see? Originally, the opening night show was going to be My Fair Lady, which had opened four years earlier and was still wildly popular. But theater manager Hugh Walker wanted to roll the dice on a high-profile musical production that was rumored to be in trouble, a new show called Camelot. As the name would suggest, Camelot was based on the story of King Arthur. It came from Alan Lerner and Frederick Lowe, the team behind My Fair Lady. After that spectacular success, expectations were sky-high for their next show. In fact, 750,000 advance tickets had been sold after Camelot was first announced in a full-page ad in the New York Times. The problem was that Lerner and Lowe couldn't get the show to work. The tone wasn't right, and the script just kept getting longer. Things got worse when Lerner's wife left him and took their son to Europe, threatening never to return. Fueled by what he described as pills of unusual potency, which were probably speed, he managed to finish the script just three days before rehearsals began. However, at the first cast read-through, the writers discovered that the show was more than three hours long. In short, they were in trouble. This is where Hugh Walker enters the picture. He had decided that the world premiere of Camelot would be a great way to open the new O'Keeffe Center, and he made Lerner and Lowe an offer that they couldn't refuse. At the time, producers would usually receive 70% of the revenue for a show, 
with the other 30% going to the theater. But Walker offered to give them 100% of the box office for a three-week tryout in Toronto before the show went to Broadway. He also offered to pay all of the costs to transport the sets from New York and to house the cast and the crew. In his autobiography, Lerner admitted that money was the primary reason that he and Lowe agreed to premiere the show in Toronto. Hugh Walker wanted a big show for opening night, and he got it. 20,000 ticket orders would arrive in the first two days after the box office opened. If the script was in trouble, at least the show had a strong cast. Richard Burton had been cast as King Arthur. Burton was an acclaimed actor. However, his last couple movies had flopped, and he commented that, I'd reached a stage where the only thing could keep me acting was a real challenge and lots of money. Burton was also a legendary carouser. He drank late into the night and well into the following morning. When asked to attend a publicity photo shoot at 10 a.m., Burton exclaimed, What? In the middle of the night? On first seeing O'Keefe Center, he famously said, Jesus, think of the hangovers that went into this. Lancelot was played by Robert Goulet a French-Canadian from Massachusetts by way of Alberta. Simpsons fans will remember him as the man who performed at Bart Simpson's Casino. Jingle bells, Batman smells, Robin laid an egg. Batmobile lost its wheel, the Joker got away. Hey, thank you, thank you very much. Oh, I'm sorry, kid. His casting was really a fluke. On the last day of auditions, producers were getting ready to leave when Goulet took the stage wearing a t-shirt and jeans because his luggage had been lost. His audition was so good that they signed him within the hour. Lancelot became the role that would make him a star. During rehearsals, Goulet became infatuated with Julie Andrews, who was playing Guinevere, but she was married and stayed loyal to her husband. Burton was a notorious womanizer, and during a drinking session, Goulet asked him for advice. Burton would later ask Lerner, Why did he come to me? I couldn't get anywhere either. Lerner and Lowe were still having problems with the show, and they thought that doing a tryout in Toronto might give them a chance to work out the kinks outside of the media spotlight. It didn't work. Canadian media went into a feeding frenzy. During rehearsals, Security cards had to be posted at every theater entrance. One PR rep said that all you had to say was Camelot and O'Keefe, and you had the press coming in droves. Lerner's nerves weren't helped when his wife and son suddenly showed up in Toronto. As he put it, I was overjoyed to see my son, but his traveling companion added considerably to the tense and nerve-wracking atmosphere. On opening night, Police officers were directing a parade of limousines along Front Street. Photographers lined the red carpet and people covered the sidewalks, trying to get a peek at celebrities as they arrived for the show. Backstage, Lerner was being berated by his wife for leaving her at the Royal York. When the director's wife found them, she hauled Mrs. Lerner out of fire door. As she described it, her, quote, ravings were out of control, so I did the only thing I could think of. I hauled off and smacked her. I don't know if you could get away with that today. Um, I'm going to say definitely not. Uh, the curtain rose at 8.15. Soon after, the motor for the main escalator started to overheat and smoke billowed into the lobby. Two fire engines showed up to investigate and they managed to fix the problem by applying a lot of grease. One of the PR reps made a run to the Royal York to buy air fresheners so the audience wouldn't notice. 
before the show began, the director warned the audience that Camelot is lovely, Camelot is going to be glorious, Camelot is long. He was not kidding. The show lasted three and a half hours. The theater critic for The Star wrote, Nobody wanted to come right out and say it, but it was evident that Toronto's theater crowd wasn't gassed by what they had seen or heard. Even Lerner described opening night as a bladder endurance contest. The show needed a lot of work, but two days later, Lerner was rushed to Wellesley Hospital with a bleeding ulcer, which put all of the rewrites on hold. Two weeks later, Lerner was released from the hospital only to discover that the director had suffered a heart attack. The show was so troubled that additional tryouts had to be scheduled in Boston and Philadelphia after the three-week run in Toronto had ended. Camelot would eventually become a hit, but not without a lot and lot of extra work. Earlier this year, Camelot returned to Broadway for the first time in 30 years with a new version by Aaron Sorkin of all people. I didn't see it, but I'm sure it included a lot of walks and talks between Arthur and Lancelot. So, did it include lots of ping-pong dialogue? Ping-pong dialogue? Ping-pong dialogue. Ping-pong dialogue. So, what happened to O'Keefe Center after Camelot left town? Well, for the next 25 years, it was the premier theater venue in Toronto. If a big show or a famous performer came to town, they could probably be found at O'Keefe. That didn't just mean highbrow stuff, like plays or ballet. It also included Bob Dylan, Steve Martin, Led Zeppelin, and Kevin Hart, among many, many others. <laughs> Having so many famous people around meant that it also got caught up in some scandalous and historical events. In 1964, Richard Burton was back to perform in Hamlet, and Elizabeth Taylor came with him. The only problem was that she was still married to Eddie Fisher. Taylor was already known as a homewrecker because Eddie Fisher had left Debbie Reynolds to marry her. Now she had left Fisher for Burton. Before Benefer, there was Lizendick. And just to be clear, I did not make that up. That's what the star called them. Crowds of people were waiting at the <laughs> airport when they arrived. The show's director, the legendary John Gilgood, wrote... Ghastly crowds of morons besiege the hotel where Burton and Taylor are staying. Every drink and conversation they have is paragraphed and reported. It really must be hell for them. Because this was still Toronto the Good, one picketer on the sidewalk in front of their hotel carried a sign that read, Drink not the wine of adultery. The show was also a bit of a mess. Gilgood decided to perform a rehearsal version with an incomplete set and the actors performing in their own clothes. After the first performance, he thought it lacked color, so he told the entire cast to wear capes. It didn't matter. People flocked to see it anyways. During the show's run, Taylor divorced Eddie Fisher in Mexico. She was now free to marry Burton, but Ontario didn't recognize Mexican divorces, so the couple had to make a run to Montreal to get married in between performances. Ten years later, the Bolshoi Ballet was performing at O'Keefe Center. The star of the show was a 26-year-old named Mikhail Baryshnikov, who was being described as the next great Russian dancer. On opening night, John Fraser, dance critic for The Globe, got a call from the wife of the New York Times dance critic. She told him that he had to deliver an urgent message to Baryshnikov. She gave him a phone number and said, quote, He has three very close friends here who simply have to make contact with him. Remember these names, Dina, Tina, 
and Sasha. Have you got them? Dina, Tina, and Sasha. It's all very cloak and dagger, isn't it? Very, very. Frazier went back to the opening night gala at O'Keefe and delivered the message in shaky French because he didn't know Russian and Brishnikov couldn't speak English. Frazier tried to play 007 by passing him a note with the phone number as they shook hands, but it got caught on one of his rings. Spies don't wear rings. Come on, that's number one. Brishnikov started to laugh and Frazier just wrote the number in the notebook. Unbeknownst to Frazier, this was part of the plan to help Brishnikov defect from the Soviet Union. Five days later, after the Bolshoi's last performance in Toronto, Brishnikov was supposed to slip through a stage door and into a waiting car that would take him to a safe house. However, a few problems got in the way. An equipment malfunction meant that the show started late, and he was delayed even further by a host of curtain calls after the show. <laughs> I just found that funny. You're like trying to escape, but you're so popular. You have to give curtain calls. Amazing. When he tried to sneak out the stage door, he was spotted, not by Soviet agents, but by autograph seekers who crowded around him. His colleagues noticed the crowd and asked where he was going. Sensing that this was his last chance, he made a run from the street and was nearly hit by a car that had to slam on the brakes. He finally made it to the getaway vehicle and was bundled off to safety. After his defection, Brishnikov made sure that his first interview was with John Fraser. In 1979, The Clash was playing at O'Keefe Center when a small riot ensued. One fan described it like this. The Clash dashed through their set, material from the first two albums, ending with White Riot, at which point everyone swarmed the stage. All the equipment was tossed around and the band disappeared abruptly as the house lights came on like a bomb. The Clash was thrilled with this response. Here's their manager the day after the concert. He's counting the number of wrecked seats in the theater. It's fucking great. It proves that somewhere in North America there are one, two, three, four, five, six, Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. There's at least fourteen, fifteen, fifteen slash sixteen. That counts. Sixteen rock and roll fans in North America. Seventeen. They started. Seventeen. Well, there you are. There's a couple over. There's probably twenty. There's probably twenty rock and roll fans in America. The riot caused five thousand dollars worth of damage in 1979 dollars and O'Keefe decided to stop hosting rock concerts. The city took control of the theater in 1968. By 1996, the building needed renovations, and Hummingbird Communications offered $5 million in exchange for the naming rights. It became the Sony Center in 2007, and since 2019, it's been Meridian Hall. But like I said at the beginning, I call it O'Keefe Center, and I'm gonna keep calling it O'Keefe Center. I'm old and I'm curmudgeonly, and that's how it is. <laughs> so guys, that's the episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we really appreciate you turning in, tuning in and turning in, I guess, but tuning in for sure. Make sure to leave us uh, a review, five stars. Uh, leave us some comments. This is how people find out about the podcast. And if you're a Toronto history fan, don't gatekeep. Let other people find out about the great podcast. Uh, so make sure to leave reviews. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever fine podcasts are purveyed. Adam, do you want to do um, – how can people get in touch with us? So you can get us by email at muddy underscore york at outlook.com. You can find us on Facebook 
at Muddy York History, or you can find us on Twitter at Toronto underscore history. If you come back in two weeks, you'll learn about the long history of the Toronto Islands, including the fact that until the 1850s, they weren't an island. Learn more when our next episode comes out, and we'll speak to you then.